Welcome to KBCast, the podcast for security executives, interviewing people from around the globe on how organizations can operate smarter and stay safer. Here's Carissa Breen. I sat down with Ben Johnson, the founder of Carbon Black, but has since gone on to develop other businesses, including Obsidian Security. Ben discusses his thoughts on frictionless security for SaaS and why this is super important. Ben discusses his thoughts on how to future-proof SaaS security and why this is becoming an area we need to pay attention to. If you're keen to learn more about Ben and his thoughts, then this episode is for you, so please keep on listening. So, Ben, I connected with you on Twitter and we're connected on LinkedIn, but I think I think you may have reached out to me a while ago and then when we were doing our next season of podcasts, I remembered and I was like, oh, I've got to hit up this Ben Johnson guy because I really like uh, your story, your pedigree, what you've actually done. So before we talk about uh, your experience and what you're doing today, I'd like to really start off with kind of your journey and talk to our audience a little bit about how you got into security and how you sort of got you uh, managed to do all the things that you've been doing with all the other companies and then to through to Obsidian. So I'm really keen to hear your story. So over to you. How much time do you have? Well, a lot. <laughs> No, I joke, but uh, you know it's easy for us to uh, all to ramble on. I think when we're when we're telling our story, uh, yeah, I, I had an interesting start. So I, I was always very interested in computer science and and you know just sort of computers and technology in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I was watching this movie, Enemy of the State, uh, in college. And uh, if anyone's you know maybe old enough uh, to to remember you know sort of late '90s movie, but um, it was Will Smith and Gene Hackman, and it was it was kind of all about NSA, uh, you know, National Security Agency, and uh, and I was like, whoa, this is this is really cool. Uh, and so quite literally that that week or it might even been the next day. But we'll we'll we'll, we'll be saying it was that week. Uh, I applied. I applied to NSA and uh, and got in and, you know, went through polygraphs and all that stuff and, and ended up having a, a pretty awesome journey uh, in the intelligence community. And, you know, uh, there was stuff there that I would have done for free and they were paying us. And it was all around, you know, cybersecurity. And it was really when some of that stuff like NSA in general wasn't really that well known. Now it's kind of, you know, in the news all the time. Uh, and I don't even think it was called cybersecurity back then. It was called, you know, information security or uh, computer security or, or other things early 2000s up till. 2007, but uh, it was fantastic and, and certainly a lot going on for the United States in, in terms of different, you know, armed conflicts and, and things like that that we were able to support. Uh, and it was also a uh, this almost like an entrepreneurial space itself because you couldn't just Google for the answers when you're building, you know, different capabilities and working in, you know, kind of cutting edge intelligence. Uh, and so you really had to develop that mindset of, you know, kind of building things from scratch or, or just sort of figuring things out. Uh, and then, you know, after a while, I got a little bit tired of, of that life and that role and uh, wanted to do something different and uh, ended up uh, with a friend. We started doing some uh, just sort of general side cybersecurity work uh, and ended up getting called in to do a lot of incident response, you know, digital forensics and and that kind of thing. This is late 2000s. And uh, my friend ended up coming up really with the idea for for Carbon Black, you know, uh, continuous recording of, of, of endpoints of, of hosts and really saying like, hey, if we're on the offensive, what would we hate to go against? Okay, something that like kind of recorded your every move, a surveillance camera. So anyways, um, like I said, I can talk forever about this. But um, anyways, saw that go from really nothing like like, you know, there's really about three of us at the beginning two two mics and, and myself and uh, 
lo and behold, a few years later, it was, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people up to uh, 800 people. And I ended up flying around the world talking to, uh, to, to security teams of all shapes and sizes about uh, really all things security, but certainly endpoints. Uh, and then in 2017, I said, you know, we're 800 people. I'm doing 100 flights a year globally. Let's do something new. And so I moved out to, to California and uh, started Obsidian Security with my friends, uh, Glenn and, and Matt. And here we are. So I'm happy to talk more about my history. But, uh, you know, it's really intelligence community sparked by a movie and uh, intrigue there uh, and then a startup, Carbon Black. And then, you know, I've been involved in other you know startups and, and other things as well. But, uh, you know, here we are at Obsidian in uh, 2020. I have to say, I love the name, actually. Uh, I think I was speaking to one of your VP of uh, Privacy and Trust, Laura, and I was like, wow, that's such an awesome name. And then um, obviously I knew that you were working there as well. So it was just, I don't know, I just really love the name. But talk to me a little bit more about 100 flights a year. How is that going just like on your like physical and mental health? That's that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it is a lot. I was in, you know, I'd be in six uh, time zones in seven days. Uh, I don't know if I don't know how much uh, context this is for for various listeners, but one time I had lunch in Chicago, dinner in Seattle, and breakfast in Boston over an 18-hour period, and that just that just wears on you, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it was. I mean, it was great in terms of the exposure, getting to talk to people in in Asia, in the Middle East, in Europe, of course, all over North America and in Australia, and uh, and you know, just getting to see what's going well and what's not on teams of, again, sort of all shapes and sizes from the best of the best to the the teams that are just starting out. And, you know, lo and behold, I think it, it really did put a, you know, strain and stress on, on body mm-hmm. and, and mind and everything. So I'm, I'm happy that I'm not doing that right now, mm-hmm, for sure. Mm-hmm. And so before we get into sort of the genesis of Obsidian, do you think that because you were doing 100 flights a year, it was very taxing on your body and on your on your mental health? Do you think that was sort of the catalyst to, to you going, okay, like I built this company, it's doing really, really well, but now I sort of want to turn a new leaf and, and start the Obsidian sort of gig? Or like what were you what were you thinking and where was your sort of head at when you when you came up with with doing what you're doing now? Yeah, I think uh, I, I think that's a great point. I think part of it was we were at the size, you know, like I said, around 800 people and starting to to even scale mm-hmm. beyond that, um, where it was more about the scaling and less about building new stuff. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. And then you combine that with me being on the road all the time, again, even, you know, internationally or being gone for multiple weeks at a time from my family. Uh, yeah, I think it all just sort of culminated in, you know, I need something new. Uh, and so, yeah, I think it was a combination of factors, but it certainly was was tiring. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so we talk about scaling, you're doing more of the scaling versus the building. What do you think you prefer? I'm guessing the building. I love building. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I mean, scaling's fun uh, and certainly scaling at the uh, sort of earlier scale stages of going from nothing to a few customers to a bunch of customers, a bunch of employees. You know, I think that's really fun. And I think every stage is fun, but I really like the the early creation part where it's all creativity and, you know, hopefully innovation and really that entrepreneurial spirit. I, I love that. Do you think that by the time you scale to a company of a of around 800 people, does it become sort of not like a corporate, but it kind of falls into that bucket because that's still a relatively large organization. And it's obviously there's a lot of processes and policies that are wrapped around at the day-to-day operations of the business. Do you sort of think that, did you have that moment when you're like, "Mm, I love this, but I don't know if it's really for me. Cause like you said, you love building things and you like the early stage of a business, but then once it gets relatively large, which is what you've grown it into, do you sort of think that, I'm, I'm done here. And is that sort of when you're keen to sort of start something else? And do you think that when Obsidian gets to that size, do you think you'll do the same? 
Great question. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's it's so many factors that, you know, if Obsidian uh, tomorrow hit 800 people, would I would I want out? I, I don't I don't think so. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, that is it is a long journey to get there. I, I, I do think also I think around 500 people is when it really started to change, uh, mm-hmm. not necessarily for the worse or anything like that, just different where you're now starting to see large numbers of people that you don't know anymore. Right. Because the first yeah. few hundred people, you kind of know everyone. And uh, at least faces, if not names as well. And then once you get to like around 500, there's just so much going on and so many customers. And, you know, and, and, and part of it also was it had been about seven years and I've always been, you know, kind of the I want to always work on, on all sorts of new stuff kind of kind of person. So, you know, part of it could have been the the. The, the time. Uh, but uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see when Obsidian gets to be that big, you know, what, mm-hmm. what happens to me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. So let, let's talk a little bit more about Obsidian. Like what are you guys actually doing? I mean, it's, it's pretty interesting what you guys are doing uh, for multiple reasons, which we'll get into in a little bit, but talk to me about sort of what you guys are doing and what your sort of vision is for the company. And I have to ask, like, where did you get the name from as well? <laughs> so uh, I could tell you that uh, we were huge Game of Thrones fans and Obsidian plays a prominent role there, but that's not actually the truth. Okay. Uh, we, we certainly played it up and we all watched Game of Thrones together and stuff. And if you haven't watched it, uh, anyone in the audience, you know, it's 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 a prominent part of, of, of the story. Um, uh, a buddy of mine, uh, a guy named Eddie, uh, we were sitting in, uh, in in Chicago before I moved to California. And he said, you know, if I ever uh, if I ever started a tech company. Uh, I would use the name Obsidian. And I'm like, oh, that's really interesting. I'm like, can I use that? He's like, yeah, because he works in professional sports and, you know, just a great guy. Um, and then when we came here, it wasn't necessarily going to be our name, but it was one of the options. And so we threw around a whole bunch of different options and, 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 and you know, tried a bunch of things. And, and inevitably, that's the thing that, that stuck. And also it's black. It's a black rock and carbon black. So it sort of worked in that sense, too. So, you know, kind of a kind of an interesting story. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, we just wanted to come together and, and, and build something new and not focus on endpoint security because that's what uh, me and, and Matt and Glenn had all done was was endpoint security. So we wanted to focus on cloud uh, for this time around. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. So let, let's sort of talk about, as you're well aware of, like companies are sort of moving towards uh, SaaS type models because in terms of how they operate now is fundamentally changed, right? So do you believe that because of this, it's sort of causing a strain from a security perspective? Like what are your sort of thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, we 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 live in in this world every day around SaaS security. And, you know, what we did is we went out and talked to hundreds of organizations, basically went back to a lot of our great customers from either Carbon Black or Silence, uh, which is where Glenn and Matt came from. And uh, they gave us lots of good feedback. And a lot of the feedback was, hey, I don't have any idea what's going on in these SaaS applications. And that was in uh, early 2017. And now, you know, fast forward three years, you know, we have uh, CISOs, uh, seeking us out and saying, hey, the journey is going to end in SaaS, right? Like everything's going that way. I have no idea what's going on uh, from a from a security perspective where either the SaaS technology, the SaaS application came in through IT and security is trying to, to, to handle it, or it might have even come in through these different business units and maybe even IT wasn't involved. And now security is responsible for, you know, monitoring Zoom or monitoring Workday or monitoring GitHub or all these different applications. And so, yeah, I think it's, it's affording a lot of uh, efficiencies and, and innovation, uh, but certainly security, you know, none of us grew up defending SaaS. We grew up defending networks or endpoints, right? So it is this new mm-hmm. world. And, you know, I think everyone's trying to, to figure out the right way to do it. So why do you believe that this will be the future? Sort of, as you touched on before, that CISOs are saying that this is going to be the future and this is going to be what ha- this will be what happens. Why do you think that's the case? Why do you think we'll end up there? 
yeah, I think I think we want to more and more focus on our 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 core mission as a business, like pick a, pick any random business. If they could get rid of all the stuff that isn't truly adding value to their customers or isn't their competitive, you know, differentiation, they would get rid of it. And I think that's why you're seeing cloud. That's why you're seeing SaaS specifically, because Mm -hmm. you no longer need to manage all this hardware or these data centers. And, you know, some of that stuff will still be around, but um, you know, most organizations are really adopting a cloud forward or cloud first mentality. And so if they can put all their email, their source code, whatever, uh, they're going to do that in the in in the SaaS apps as well as you see thing, uh, places like Amazon or Microsoft try to get to serverless compute. Well, that's basically just telling a SaaS app to perform certain functions for you. And then finally, like you look at startups like us, everyone gets a MacBook Pro, and the mm-hmm. rest of our business is SaaS or some AWS, right? I mean, that's yeah. it. Yeah. Like there's nothing to deploy, nothing to manage, no big IT team. So I, I I do think it's it's the future, or at least a big portion of the future. I had a chat uh, with a guy actually over in the US uh, from AWS, and we we're sort of just talking about the mentality around sort of on-prem and then sort of hybrid and then full adoption to cloud. And so one of the one of the key drivers that he spoke about is just really about the mentality of people sort of letting go of what they used to do and what was traditionally done. Do you think the same sort of applies now? I mean, like I would say that I'm very much uh, on the same belief when you talk about cloud and SaaS and all that, and maybe because I'm a millennial, but I think it's just also because of, I see value in it and I like the approach of being anywhere in the world and you, you don't have all the problems that I guess traditionally would be there if you're doing sort of on-prem stuff. So what do you sort of think in terms of, is it, do you think that it's still people's mindsets that are holding them back? Like, well, we haven't done it like this. We haven't seen an engagement model like this. What do you sort of think when it comes to people's approach and adoption towards this? Yeah, I think I think part of it is what you're comfortable with. So, like I said, if you're grew up uh, monitoring networks or having the server room in the back and kind of knowing where your data is, it's kind of hard to just sort of magically put that in the, you know, quote unquote cloud and hope that it's all secured properly and that your your team knows how to configure and you know monitor properly. So I think part of it's that, um, you know, sometimes it is contracts or other aspects of the business that make you retain stuff either in a you know private data center or on premise. Uh, so I think part of it might be more business driven. But I do think you know, so many businesses we talk to, which is kind of, again, all shapes and sizes uh, are, are going cloud forward or cloud first that, you know, I think that's it's just forcing people to change. The other thing I saw was Microsoft said uh, in the first two months, at least in the U.S. really of, of, of covid, um, they saw two years worth of cloud migration efforts. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. it's just, well. this, you know. You know, it was already going fast, but now it's, you know, to your point, we need to work from anywhere. We need to work from home. Uh, do we even have, you know, offices? And I don't want to, you know, steer the conversation completely there. But the point is, like, cloud affords you to kind of continue working regardless of these, you know, influences. And so I, I think it's only going to continue. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When I was sort of doing a little bit of research on, on yourself and on Obsidian, one of the there was a comment that you, I sort of I read and it sort of talked about Obsidian cloud detection and response delivers frictionless security for SaaS. So that was something that I've I've read on one of your white papers. Can you talk to me a little bit more about what you mean by this statement specifically? Yeah. So one of the things we wanted to do when we set out to build this was uh, really kind of use the power of SaaS to defend SaaS. And what we mean is it needs to be easy. It needs to be fast time to value. You know, when you set up a SaaS, you know, 
email or SaaS file sharing app like Box or Dropbox or any of these, you basically fill out a little bit of information and click a couple buttons and you're up and running, right? And so we really wanted the same thing for for Obsidian, which is um, really when you onboard some of these different applications for us to monitor and help you secure, um, you're really just, again, kind of clicking a few buttons and, and giving us some, some API keys or tokens or things like that with really nothing to deploy. And so um, really what we're talking about is there's very little burden on the you know IT or security team to deploy us, and then there's nothing that the employees have to do. So none of your you know you could have a hundred thousand employees, none of them have to change how they work, and all of a sudden you have a new capability on the security team. So that was really a big part of of what we were trying to do, and especially coming from our endpoint security days and. You know, I love endpoint security, but we had to go in and ask companies to install an agent on every single laptop. Right. And so we mm -hmm. really wanted this to be very, very low friction, basically frictionless, where a couple clicks and you're you have this new uh, security capability. So so that's really what we mean by frictionless. And then detection and response is really it's it's focused on continuous monitoring, looking for threats, looking for compromise, that kind of thing, and then helping you uh, do incident response and remediation to, uh, you know, kind of clean it up. So it's a long statement, but, uh, you know, so that's that's really how we break it down. When you said uh, before the power of SaaS to defend SaaS, so do you think because of this and because of what you guys are trying to do in terms of the defending side of it, do you think that this will become easier then over time? And do you think as a result of that, like a byproduct will be that the, the industry will become better off? I hope so. Yeah, I think when uh, when I think to your question a, a few minutes ago, uh, a little while ago, uh, when when a security team or a business unit or whatever is looking at adopting a new SaaS platform, one of the questions they often ask is like, well, how am I going to monitor this? How am I going to you know investigate if we have an issue, a leak, you know, that kind of thing? And so if there's more capabilities out there that make a security team feel like they have the visibility, feel like they have some 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 monitoring, uh, I do hope that it will help drive just more SaaS adoption as a whole. And, you know, like I said earlier, like CISOs are starting to say, like, the journey is going to end in SaaS. So, you know, everyone wants to get there, wants to have less and less to worry about and just worry about the business value or the application value. Um, and so if we can help play a part, you know, I think that'll be great. So we talk about the journey and ending in SaaS. Where do you sort of think that the, the large enterprises are multinationals? Like, how, do you, how far off do you think they are? And you spoke before that within the first month of covid uh, Microsoft's seen an adoption in terms of two years in terms of increase. Do you think that these enterprises will take their time to sort of get there or do you think they're moving in the right direction and it's not something that you can just sort of happen overnight? It is a bit of a process. But what, what are your sort of thoughts on that? I think it, to your to your point, it is a bit of a process. Uh, we already are talking to everyone to you know the top Fortune companies that are you know massive, and they all, they all have SaaS, right? Every, everyone has SaaS, like sort of Office three sixty five or G Suite mm -hmm. or maybe it was mm -hmm. Salesforce or whatever. They sort mm -hmm. of broke the broke the mold. And then it was kind of this, this dam and all the water rushed through and it's all like, you know, SaaS is everywhere. And, you know, some of these companies have 800 SaaS, different SaaS apps that they use. And so, um, yeah, I, I do think there's still a bunch of migration or, or sort of transformation to go on, but I think, uh, pretty much every company out there is already looking at this. And we even talked to, you know, government agencies and, and stuff like that. And they're already doing a lot of this either through the government clouds or, or they want to figure out how they can use some of these tools to make their teams, you know, maybe more productive. So I think it's all here, regardless of if you're, you know, a million employees or, or 10, it's, it's here. And it's just a matter of how much of your business is running off of it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. Well, 
I, I totally agree with uh, your points there. So what I'd love to do now is probably just let's dive into some case studies uh, specifically on what you guys are doing at Obsidian because I think it's really, really important um, for, for people to understand specifically on how you guys are actually tackling all of these challenges and problems that they're probably sitting there listening going, yeah, I have that problem. So you, you guys spoke about unused privileges uh, to increase the attack surface. So can you walk our listeners through how you guys are solving this problem? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things we said is, look, you have to connect into these different applications and, you know, we do all that work, but you have to connect into all these applications, pull the data around who the, who the users are, like who are the accounts, who are the identities, and then also the behavior, like what's going on from an activity perspective. Uh, And then once you can really pull all that and maybe do it across applications, right? So you're pulling Office 365 data and Salesforce and Zoom and Box and, you know, pick a bunch of applications. You're pulling all that back and then you can start to do some analysis and you can say, okay, first and foremost, where are all the accounts that have no activity, right? Because if they have no activity, you might as well just shut them off. That's a huge mm-hmm. problem. We see like 30% of your accounts are typically, uh, uh, idle, you know, inactive and, and they're turned on. And then we see a bunch of times those get compromised because, you know, no one's really watching out for them or maintaining them anymore, but they're still turned on, maybe even charging. You're getting charged by the SaaS provider for the, the licenses for those. But anyways, that's that's sort of step one is trying to right size your your access. Uh, and then from there, it's looking at privilege and looking at who are all the administrators or different privileged users. Uh, and then are those users, uh, first of all, should they be doing that based on their title or their role or that kind of thing in the business? business. Uh, and, and we see a lot of, of users that typically were added maybe a couple of years ago or whatever. And they're like, well, wait, why does this person have uh, admin privileges in, in, mm-hmm. in Office 365? But then also, if you can see what the people are actually doing in the application and say, oh, this guy never actually does anything that requires administrator level rights, why not just get rid of him? Right. He's mm-hmm. still doing his job. You can see with data that you're not going to harm his productivity. And so uh, trying to do some of those uh you know, sort of outcomes is, is, is part of what we're trying to do, which is, yeah, reduce access, reduce privilege without hurting productivity, because that's a key part of SaaS, right, is productivity. Um, and there's plenty of other things we do, but I think that's a, that is a big part of what we're trying to do, which is just help you see what's going on in these applications so then you can reduce the surface area. So do you believe that there are a lot of companies out there who are not really aware about all of their employees' privileges? As you spoke before, that uh, there could be someone that has admin rights for 0365 but aren't even utilizing it. So do you think that – I mean, I've worked in organizations before where I think this is a massive problem uh, in terms of, like, yes, auditing it, monitoring it, ensuring who has has more privileged access than others. Do you still feel like this is a large – problem in terms of people not even knowing where where they sit when it comes to this type of stuff? Oh, yeah. Yeah, especially in SaaS, because SaaS, typically, you might be able to control access uh, through single sign-on, you know, a you mm-hmm. know, tool like Okta or other, other ways where you try to get all your employees logging in through a central place. Uh, but the actual privilege levels and whether they're admin or not might, you know, often still lives in, in the SaaS applications themselves. And so you have to kind of go app to app looking. Um, and a lot of times the security team doesn't even have access to some of these applications. They have to go ask IT or the business unit. Um, and then, yeah, we see everyone we, 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 we install and we see quite often, you know, I guess you could call it identity creep or privilege creep where mm-hmm. um, there's just a lot of people that have administrator level rights and, you know, different levels of sophistication, but, but often it's, it's quite high. And, and, you know, that's one of the recommendations we typically give is, Hey, here's a bunch of users. You might want to uh, reduce their privileges. 
Mm-hmm. And when you spoke before about that, there was a whole bunch of people that weren't even there. Were, there was no activity; it was just idle. Why do you think that these sort of privileges were turned on in the first place? Was it just default, and then it sort of just stayed that way, and then no one, no one knew, and then no one audited, and then finally you guys came in and you saw it, and then you shut it down? What do you think, sort of, the reasoning behind that is? Yeah, I think uh, I think it's you, you. When someone comes to you with a request, typically you mm-hmm. want to help them, right? You want to allow them to do their job, but then they might only need that access for a day or a week or a month, or even if it's years, but then all of a sudden they don't need it. They don't necessarily call somebody up and say, I don't need this anymore. Or they leave the business and sometimes the accounts Mm -hmm. just don't get turned off. Um, And so, you know, especially with someone like a contractor where the Mm. internal employee who brought in the contractor or sort of sponsored them, maybe that internal employee left. So no one knows who this contractor is. So everyone's afraid to shut it off because you don't know if it's going (laughs) to break some critical system. Right. So, I mean, there's, I could go on and on. And I used to give a talk called identity creep and it would, you know, I'd have a line out the door if people ask me questions after, cause it hit home so well, but um, yeah, this, you know, sort of the, 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 the way you can like monitor and then try to tie that back to are people still using their accounts. Uh, I think that's, it's needed because yeah, it's such a problem that we've, we've just sort of left all these accounts turned on, even though they're no longer in use. I've been in the position before where there was all these really expensive like contractors in and then they actually just got rolled off completely. And then like trying to reinstate them was an absolute nightmare and a mission. I had just started this company, you know, they're like, Oh, we have to like reinstate like 50 of these people because they're really, really expensive and they're costing us a lot of money per day that they can't access anything. Uh, so I actually had sort of the other side of it, which, and then it becomes a problem because I mean, the access wouldn't just come back straight away. Um, and it, it became a massive bottlenecking because you had to constantly just manually audit it. Um, and of course you would know that there's so many problems with that. And when you've got hundreds of thousands of people that you're just manually auditing and monitoring, uh, it becomes really overwhelming. And then you have problems like this all of the time because it's, you may think, I mean, I think I was using a spreadsheet back then to say, okay, this guy's access because his contractor goes to this date. So before this date, I have to make sure extend it out. Uh, so, um, I've been in that position before and it, it, um, there's a lot of bottlenecking that does happen when people's access just gets sort of cut off quite, uh, uh, with, with being blindsided by it as well. Yeah. You're, I mean, you're, you're hitting the nail on the head. Like a lot of times the reason this access sort of creep or this excess access exists in the first place is because everyone's afraid to give up access, right? And in those organizations you were at, if it was an easier onboarding or granting, you know, problem Mm. or or, uh, sorry, process, uh, the provisioning process was easier. Then everyone's like, sure, I know I can get this back easily if I need it again. So sure, I'll give it up. But quite often it's a very painful process to get access. So once you have it, you're going to hold on to it, even if you don't need it. Right. Oh, 100%. And I remember just from memory, it was like, oh, on Mondays, like no one's getting access because obviously everyone everyone in the company was trying to like request access. So the whole thing was really slow. And yes, everyone just sort of knew like if someone's access was being cut off by Monday, like you're just not still going to have access until like Tuesday. Um, So I've lived and breathed that problem. And I agree. People want to hold on to stuff because provisioning those rights is a mission. And then when you, you obviously take those sort of uh, privileges away from people, um, yeah, it gets, can get a little bit political. So, um, yeah, I've been definitely on that uh, receiving end of all of those uh, uh, conversations. So what I'd love to talk to you about next is when you guys talk about future-proofing SaaS security, and we may, we may sort of touch on it a little bit before, but I'd love you to go in a little bit of more detail about how Obsidian sort of approaching this. 
Yeah. So I think there's there's a couple ways, um, you know, first from us as a vendor or on the product side, uh, you know, what we're saying to teams is like we're going to do the work of uh, handling any changes to your SaaS applications APIs, right? So if Office 365 comes out with new capabilities that allow for even better monitoring, like we're gonna just handle that, right? So, you know, if you deploy something like us, like we're gonna we're gonna do the work of trying to keep up as well as we're gonna keep adding more and more coverage, more and more, you know, integrations and things like that. So uh, naturally the, the any, you know, and this should be true with any vendor, like if you invest in a vendor on January 1, when you go to renew next Jan 1, they should be giving you a better product, right? If, if your vendor's not doing that, like, get, you know, go somewhere else. Um, and so trying to just, you know, keep up with with changes as well as anticipating um, just, you know, kind of what data we're going to need and things like that. And then internally, as we try to secure Obsidian, so us as like a, you know, just a business, um, we tend to look at, you know, what are what are our vendors doing in terms of making, you know, logging and data available? What are they doing with their thoughts on privacy? What are they doing on, you know, sort of different ways we can control access and, you know, how responsive are they when things start to change so we can, you know, really make sure that we can uh, get a handle on any changes as they occur. So, you know, I think really it comes down to where's your business going and can you work with different vendors that are going to help you, you know, sort of meet you there or help take care of most of the, the work of the change for you, I think is fundamentally it. And that that's what we try to do is, you know, integrate with more and more SaaS apps as well as uh, handle any changes as the apps themselves uh, get updated or have API changes. So when you go to a client and I mean, a lot of the time people are very, very overwhelmed in this space, as you're well aware of, and you're sort of saying like, we can deploy this monitoring and we can manage this for you. What, do you see like a massive relief in people's faces? They're like, oh my gosh, thank God, like, because I feel overwhelmed as it is. And now I have a never ending to do list. And then on top of that, I don't even know how to be monitoring these people through SaaS. And then sort of you guys come in and, and be able to alleviate a lot of that pressure. So how are those sort of conversations going with some of the clients that you've got in terms of them, them being very reliant on what you guys are doing? Yeah, I think, you know, first and foremost, it's uh, sort of what we talked about before, which is most of us grew up in network security or host based security. And so, you know, mm -hmm. what are threats looking like in the SaaS space or what are risks looking like and what's going on and what should you be on the, the lookout for and things like that. So I think, first of all, it starts with uh, bringing knowledge to the table. And so, you know, the customer doesn't necessarily have to be an expert. And then when you think about SaaS, you're going to have a whole bunch of SaaS apps. So then you multiply mm -hmm. that. You don't have to be an expert in these, you know, 15 different apps or whatever you're trying to secure. Um, and then, you know, then, yeah, doing the work of pulling the data, centralizing it, and then trying to like condense it down into like simple like alerts or other things. And, you know, so yeah, I think there's a lot of relief because it is this new area. It's getting more and more business attention, right? It's very much critical in a lot of situations now around, you know, your sensitive files, your email, whatever. Um, and then security teams, yeah, just weren't really built to like understand this part of the the, the tech stack. And don't get me wrong, security teams are great. And, you know, part of, I think, InfoSec that that draws people into InfoSec is uh, that they're the kind of people that want to continuously learn and, you know, kind of keep up with the latest trends and try to defend them or whatever. But it's still a huge burden. And we all know cybersecurity teams are often just, you know, uh, inundated with work. Uh, so if we can help them uh, alleviate some of that or save them some time, I, yeah, they're, they're, they're quite often thankful for that. That was really 
to sorry, that was a really interesting point that you touched on before about bringing knowledge together. And you spoke about uh, security teams not necessarily knowing all of the latest trends. So, how do you think, as an industry now, there's I mean, there's a lot of different vendors out there. There's a lot of different players out there globally speaking. Do you think that customers feel incredibly overwhelmed? And do you also believe that people are going and doing their own vendor analysis? And how, how do you think they're sort of getting this inf- in information so they understand what, what vendors that are A, out there, and B, like what type of problems they solve? Because there are so many people in this space now than there ever was before. I'm just really keen to hear your thoughts because you are on that vendor side. Yeah, I think I think security teams and CISOs and such are are quite sick of, you know, all the inundation of, of vendor emails and such. And so I think they're looking to, you know, podcasts, for an example, or, um, you know, different ways where they can try to find uh, intelligent conversation uh, is sort of one bucket. I think another bucket is 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 the trusted partner, right? So whether it's a consultant, a, a value-added reseller, a managed security provider, uh, everyone I talk to that's in those kinds of businesses is just unbelievably busy in a, in a good way, right? I mean, there's just so much demand from uh, clients to help them figure out what they should be deploying, how best to optimize their security stack, how best to hire people, or can they get some surge capacity or these other things? So yeah, I think um, I think security teams and, and, and security leadership in general are, are trying to figure out what actually is going to add value and, and sort of move the needle. And the other thing I would say is I think they're also trying to figure out how they can squeeze more out of their investments, right? So if you invest in, in various vendors, can you get more out of the tools that, you know, like what are you using your endpoint security tool for? Or what are you using this tool for, right? And so, you know, I would say like, if you use our tool, like can you get as much out of it as possible? Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot going on and, and all in all, like security teams get a bit tired of the explosion of security vendors. And now they're trying to figure out how to navigate that without, you know, spending their whole life just in, in vendor pitches. Absolutely. And one of the things you said, like they're trying to get as much out of their vendor as possible. I think I had a conversation a while back now and the guy was sort of saying, like, was a vendor guy and he was just sort of talking about like, there's a lot of vendors out there that go into a company, but they don't actually continuously train the internal staff of, like you said before, if they're bringing out new features or they've done a whole uh, lot of development work and there's probably a whole bunch of new stuff that the client didn't already know about. How do you sort of approach that from a vendor perspective to ensure that your clients are getting the absolute uh, best that they can out of what you guys are doing? Like, how do you, how do you keep that conversation going and getting these people interested? Because ultimately, uh, I see that a lot, especially working uh, myself on a client side, that people would just come in, deploy whatever it was, and then we'd never see them again. And there's a lot of that that happens. And I think there, there's a lot of people who don't do that. And I know that. Um, that you spoke about this before uh, publicly. So I'm really keen to hear your thoughts on how, how you sort of approach that problem. Yeah. So I think it's, it's hard enough, but what makes it even harder is often you go through the vendor process, they like your product, you get installed. And then the person who did all that work moves on to another job or another company yeah. or whatever. And now it's a new person who wasn't involved in any of the trial or any of the original training. And, you know, so, so it is a tough problem. I think it's a combination of, uh, a few things. I think first, first and foremost, you need to be very responsive to any sort of customer questions or requests. Uh, secondly, you need to try to reach out and you know 
have that human touch and, hey, what can I tell you about or have you seen this kind of thing? Uh, and then third, it's more of the kind of continuous updates of like this is what's new or here's some some cool like big feature that we just released. Maybe we're going to send you a video of how it works um, as well as in the product itself, having the little, you know, sort of guided tours and walkthroughs and and stuff like that, trying to just make sure you're, you're sort of educating as much as possible without overburdening yourselves by, you know, spending all your time on that. Um, and then finally, if you can get there, getting to a community state. And I thought we did this really well at Carbon Black, which is we would have some of the coolest companies out there with really phenomenal uh, security teams in this online forum sharing rules and API scripts and best practices and all those other things. So then it really starts to scale because everyone's just helping each other. So you still mm -hmm. need the, you know, the vendor to be, you know, sort of the subject matter expert of the, the product or the space, but you had just had so many other experts that didn't even work for Carbon Black and, you know, ideally for Obsidian, we'll, we'll get there soon, um, where you have this online community where everyone's just trading information and, and helping each other out. No, I think that's a really, really good idea because I'm just, it's just been a theme as of lately of people talking to me on and off the podcast just about information overload and where people are sort of going to to get this information on the industry in general. But then in specifically talking on, well, we've got all of these different vendors, like how are we actually managing that relationship with our vendors to ensure that we're getting the information we need? Uh, because like you said, uh, the guy that you probably sold the stuff to, he may have moved on and then a new person comes in there and then you feel like, oh, I have to prove myself again because we've already gone through this and the whole sales cycle is like 12, 18 months, two years. And now a new guy's come in and he's probably not necessarily as keen on us as the previous guy was. And then I think it's kind of like this, this vicious cycle that happens and people need to ensure that they're constantly communicating with their clients. And, and like you mentioned before, that's one thing I really like about you is because you, you were saying like, if there's new feature that's come out, you guys are going to be talking about that and whatever means possible. And I really like the, the online forum that you, you've spoken about um, as well as I think that you guys are sort of bringing together a community of people to talk about their problems. And, and you guys are sort of just uh, um, being the subject matter expert that, that you touched on. So I really, I really love that. Um, so, then what I'd like to sort of ask you lastly is just really talking about your thoughts on the future of security in the SaaS space and how do you see it changing in terms of interconnection and expectation? Starting with the small questions, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, SaaS is not going away. Uh, as, as I think we've all said, and you see, you know, just massive, massive companies like Salesforce or, you know, of course, Microsoft and such, um, who are just continually producing uh, software in the SaaS, you know, sort of mode. Um, and so it's not it's not going away. And I think it's becoming ever increasing, increasingly useful to us as, uh, you know, sort of businesses to adopt SaaS because it does afford us then focus, like we can focus more and more on what, what we want to be doing versus managing and configuring and all these other things. Um, and so I think, SaaS is not going away. I think you're starting to get more awareness from security teams and businesses that they have to think about security when it comes to SaaS, because for a lot of time, a long time, they thought, oh, it's just it's in the cloud. It's they're going to do it all for me. And it's like, mm -hmm. no, you still have to defend and make sure the right people have access and things like that. Um, and then from there, I think it's it's yeah, it's trying to figure out like, OK, does every SaaS app 
have multi-factor authentication capabilities, which I'm surprised actually a lot still don't. I, I was kind of shocked like they don't. But do they have MFA and other ways to sort of protect, you know, sort of login and access? Um, can they be integrated into single sign-on and stuff like that so you can get a better handle around, you know, sort of a choke point of everyone's logging in through a central place? Um, do you have monitoring, that kind of thing? Can we standardize the logging and, and the monitoring? Because quite frankly, everyone does it their own way. So I think that's an area that security could improve on. Um, and then, yeah, like the other thing that's that's really key here is um, clouds talk to clouds or SaaS talks to SaaS, right? Like how, how many of us have gone in and said, oh, yeah, I'm going to authorize my Google Drive to give access to, you know, this other SaaS app so it can read my Google Drive files and, you know, maybe it helps you for whatever reason. But now there's that like programmatic or, you know, system uh, connection that really has no human, but now that's another opening into your company's, you know, SaaS app. So I think, I think there's just going to be a lot of focus on how do we, how do we make sure this problem doesn't overwhelm us of just everything's connected, everything's always on, everything's available. And maybe how can we use our behavior and our activity to help inform decision-making, right? So if you see that no one in your company is connecting from a whole continent, just block the continent from having access to Office 365. You can actually do stuff like that, but we don't because everyone's afraid because they're mm -hmm. not quite sure how the products are being used. So I think how does the future like way down the road look like? I don't know. Hopefully each SaaS app has better built-in capabilities and then you can help centralize them or pull them together in your security team. But I think in the meantime, you just have to take a, a, an eye on how can I do something now? Uh, and, uh, you know, whether it's reduction of access or better logging and monitoring or more sort of threat detection or whatever it is, I think you got to do something. That's a really great point that you mentioned about the two-factor authentication. I myself have noticed that. So wh why do you think this is not incumbent of any sort of company when they're building an application to ensure that that's, that's a feature because I have noticed that myself and it does send question marks and I'm just really keen to hear your thoughts. Wouldn't that, I feel like that's a very obvious thing that I, I would personally do, but maybe it's more obvious to security people than it is to, to companies that are perhaps is purely from a development background. Yeah. I, I think I even heard you talking about this on, on a, on a podcast or something too, but um, yeah, like, <laughs> A couple times we did like we didn't even think to ask in the initial conversation about security because you just like I, I just take it as such a necessity, such a mm -hmm. given. Mm -hmm. um, but if you're really like a software engineering team and you're trying to solve a business problem and you're really not coming from any aspect of the security world, um, I guess it's just not something that you think is mandatory yet. And so, you know, it, it, it does come back to then just simple username and password. So I think I think it's on all of us to do a better job, quite frankly, of of education and awareness. Uh, you, you can almost not fault someone just because they don't know that this is such a bad problem if they've never been in the industry. And, you know, I'm not going to let them off the hook completely, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. I'm still, I'm still kind of flabbergasted. Some of the, some of the vendors we've had to work with that don't have MFA because it just, you know, 2FA MFA seems so vital today. Do you think now, I mean, this is pretty out there question. Uh, the right guy to answer it. When we speak about, as you just mentioned before, about uh, multi-factor authentication, uh, two-factor authentication is not at all even part of a lot of these vendors or or these companies that are out there. Do you think that perhaps in the future there could be like a global standard that's rolled out that like if you're, you have a SaaS-based product, you must have multi-factor or two-factor or something to that level or else I don't know, you get fined or you lose your license or something like that. Do you think that that could ever be a thing? Yeah, I do. Um, now, whether it's 
whether it's more uh, you won't get business because uh, you don't have 2FA or it's an actual like regulatory, you know, uh, demand or, you know, obligation. I, I, I'm not sure how far and especially with, you know, SAS is kind of global. So who, whose jurisdiction and yeah, all that and stuff. But but I, yeah, but I do think I mean, we when we try to provide services to businesses, I mean, they ask us a million questions and make us do all the all these, you know, different uh, certifications and things like that. So um, I, I think it's it's going to continually put pressure on SAS vendors that they have to have certain capabilities to even try to get business. I only ask that because we've been speaking the whole time about the future of SAS. Everything's going to end in SAS. Everything's cloud. So to me, it, the people who don't have this functionality is really concerning. I mean, yes, from a security perspective alone, but then even from a trust perspective as well, like there are a lot of uh, SaaS-based companies out there that don't have this. And I'm just really curious. And I, I, I don't know, I just, when you were talking, I was just like, yeah, why isn't there like some global standard that there's some regulation around it? Because that would potentially solve just, a lot of problems of in terms of like brute force attacks and all that type of stuff. Like it just, it definitely mitigates a lot of those, of those attacks just very purely and simple just because of that alone, that control. So I was just really curious to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah. I've talked to, and I won't linger on this too much, but I've talked to some banks around uh, and, and heard uh, people from banks give talks and, you know, it's like kind of, why isn't it, uh, required for banking. And it's because they're so concerned with blocking their legitimate customer base. And some of them might be very, you know, sort of tech illiterate, or at least not, not great with tech. And mm-hmm. so it's hard for them or they don't have, you know, the right phone or whatever. Um, and so I, I do understand some of that. And a lot of these, these, uh, you know, SaaS apps or whatever they are, um, the whole point of them is to give access to their customers to some sort of business or consumer benefit. But to, to your points, um, yeah, it, it, it needs to be required. And quite frankly, if you haven't turned on 2FA, you're, you're compromised. I'm, I'm telling you here, I'm telling everyone here, <laughs> if you haven't turned on 2FA, you're compromised. Mm-hmm. Well, I've absolutely loved your thoughts and your opinions and your knowledge. Uh, I also like your forward thinking and just your your approach to the industry, like SaaS alone, but just in general. So, Ben, I've really appreciated the time. If people are keen to perhaps ask you a question that I didn't ask you, how can they go about doing that? Sure. So, uh, B Johnson at obsidiansecurity.com or find me on LinkedIn, uh, Ben Johnson or at Chicago Ben on Twitter. So really, really anywhere you want to find me, I'm, I'm there. Awesome. Well, again, Ben, I really appreciate your time and I really loved a lot of the insight that you've shared with myself, but also our broader audience. Thanks again. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for tuning in. As always, we hope you got some new ideas or ways of thinking from this episode. And remember, you can always reach out to our guests if you do have more questions. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and we always love to hear your feedback. So leave a review on iTunes and we might just give you a shout out on a future episode. You can find me on LinkedIn as well as on at I am Carissa Breen on Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to know more about how we help tech companies, check out carissabreenindustries.com. Until next time, stay safer.